Now you talked about uh, some folks just being opposed to fossil fuels. And why do you say that eliminating all fossil fuels is a bad idea? You, you, you find me any energy expert in the world who thinks that we'll somehow not need fossil fuels in the year 2050, they can't be found, right? Any, any energy expert in the world will say, we will be using fossil fuels in the year 2050. The growing demand for energy means we can go all in on nuclear, we can go all in on renewables, we can go all in on, on a lot of these things. We're still gonna need fossil fuels. So it's imperative that we figure out how to burn fossil fuels cleaner and get to a net zero, which we are on track to do. I'm very confident that our, that our current pace, we will actually figure that out and, and be able to do that. But to answer your question, it's because we need that for our energy future. There is no plan uh, that anybody can lay out that doesn't include uh, fossil fuels in the year 2050. So let's, let's get them clean. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential. And here's your host, Jeff Crank. All right, thanks for joining us for another episode of American Potential. I'm real excited about our guest today, someone who represents a state right close to me here in Colorado, uh, and that's the great state of Utah. And I'm excited uh, to, to talk to him about this topic. You know, when it comes to the climate discussion, one side seems to kind of dominate the issue with their solutions. But what if there were other solutions that aren't as well known uh, that could have a better impact on the environment and the economy? Well, there's one congressman who's decided to take this issue on from a free market perspective, and he started the Conservative Climate Caucus. Now, this caucus represents solutions that don't limit energy options and includes private sector innovations. And it doesn't exclude fossil fuels from being a part of the solution. Now, by embracing this issue from an environmental stewardship standpoint, along with free market values, it shows that this issue has solutions that can provide affordable and reliable energy while also leaving the environment better than we found it. So who's this congressman that decided to take on this issue? Well, our guest today entered the political arena at a young age by volunteering on his mom's school board campaign. He's a graduate of Brigham Young University, and he serves as the chief operating officer for Action Target Company before taking on the role of mayor of Provo, Utah. And in 2017, when uh, Congressman Jason Chaffetz vacated his congressional seat, this provided our guest with the opportunity to embark on a new journey by running for and ultimately winning the seat. I want to welcome Representative John Curtis, who represents Utah's third congressional district. Congressman, thanks for being with us. How are you? I'm cold. It's cold here in Utah, probably like it is for you. <laughs> and uh, it is. I'm, I'm warm heart and delighted uh, to be with you. And this is just a topic I love to talk about. So Thanks for letting me be your guest today, and I'm looking forward to a very thoughtful conversation. Well, yeah, we're, we're excited to have you. Now, I originally, I always have kind of a warm-up question, kind of a get-to-know-you question. I had one written out about you being a Boy Scout and hiking 100 miles in seven days with a 40-pound yeah. pack at the age of 13. But, but Heather Andrews, who was our state director in Utah, and I know you know Heather, sure. she yeah. says, oh, no. 
you have to ask him about his sock collection. <laughs> so I guess I have two questions. Let's start with the sock collection. I need to know about that, Congressman. Well, you know, it's interesting. Some people will go to Washington and they'll be known for their oratory and some will be known for their legislation. I perhaps will be known for my socks. And I can't, <laughs> I can't resist a, a, a fun pair of socks. And the reason is they make people smile. And, you know, in our business, we just don't get to smile enough. So you can always count um, and when you catch me, ask me to see my socks. And uh, hopefully they will make you smile. And even so much so that Anytime I'm on the floor of the house, three or four people will ask to see my socks. And uh, we always have a lot of fun with that. All right. Well, what's the craziest pair of socks that you have? I guess I have to ask. Well, so I probably, they're all crazy, right? Like, uh, but my favorite pair of socks goes back to the first pair of socks I bought that actually were not black or blue, uh, but had a little stripe on them. And I still have those socks and wear them from time to time because it was it was such a breakout, right? At the time, this was <laughs> this was 12, 15 years ago when nobody was wearing colored sure. socks. And uh, I really broke all the rules. And that's probably my favorite <laughs> pair of socks. <laughs> all right. Well, now, how about when you were a Boy Scout? You hiked 100 miles in seven days yeah. uh, when you were 13 years old and you had a 40-pound pack. Tell me about that. Well, let me just tell you, I think it's a really relevant question because it has a lot to do with my position today um, on being a good steward over this earth. I was really blessed with a scoutmaster who who had this passion to show us the outdoors. And he led us up to the, the tallest peak in Utah, King's Peak. And I remember as a 13-year-old, I, I could look out and I could see as far as the eye could see mountains and trees and streams and wildlife. And, and that implanted in my heart a, a love of the outdoors and a desire to make sure that my children and my grandchildren had that same experience. And sure enough, not, not too many years ago, I took my kids up King's Peak and showed them that same vista. And I just think all of us, regardless of our political affiliation, care deeply about leaving this earth better than we found it. And, and that, that was one of the early starts for me uh, into those feelings. Yeah, you know, it is true. Uh, I'm, I'm an outdoorsman, have been my whole life, and I consider myself a conservationist uh, and always have uh, and, and, and always will, for sure. Um, so, but it does seem like the political left in America is kind of taking control uh, of the messaging on this environmental issue. You know, what are folks on the right missing when it comes to the conversation around the climate issue? Yeah, I love the question. I, I, we, boy, we could talk about this one question all hour, but let me just simply say a couple of things. Um, first of all, we're allowing ourselves to be branded as somehow not caring. No, you and I know that's not true. But we're allowing that, that brand to, to precipitate. And, and so that's a problem. Number two is that we're not at the table, meaning that these ideas are put forth by the other side and we're not there to debate them. And that, that can lead to some very problematic outcomes. And, and just look at Europe. So for, as a really good example, many countries in Europe said, we're going we're gonna to shut down our nuclear. Well, they shut down clean energy and nuclear and replace that with fossil fuels from an enemy. And had conservatives been at the table to push back, that probably wouldn't have happened. And so among other things, we need to be at that table to, to debate and, and, and good ideas and bad ideas. Europe uh, just 15 years ago uh, produced as much natural gas as Russia, but they decided they didn't want to frack. Well, today they buy fracked natural gas from Russia, an enemy. 
So where were the conservatives to push back and say, no, that's not a good idea? And so I think the best answer to your question is we need to be at that table so our ideas are heard and we're able to push back on ideas that don't ultimately lead to less emissions and leave us dependent on an enemy for, for fuel. There are, uh, there are so many things in our life right now that are really driven by this issue and by the left's narrative on this issue. Everything from utility costs to the price of new vehicles, all of it driven, um, you know, by, by kind of, I would almost say the hysteria sometimes on the left on, on this issue. Um, and it's taking, you know, the people that it hurts the most are the people that can ill afford uh, this, uh, whether it's, you know, single moms out there, you know, trying to make ends meet that, that sometimes have to choose maybe between, uh, you know, sending their kids to uh, a, an after school class or something and putting groceries uh, in the cupboard. Your, your thoughts on that and how that, that really drives what Americans do uh, by and large uh, today. Listen, so we've been told something that's not true. And, and this is what we were told, is that we had to sacrifice not only affordability, but reliability. We take reliability for granted here in the United States. We had to sacrifice that so that we could be clean. And that's what Europe did. Europe was willing to throw away affordability, a, a, a throw away reliability, all in this pursuit of clean. And coming back to why Republicans need to be at the table is we actually have a, a, a thoughtful plan that reduces emissions, but keeps prices affordable and keeps energy reliable and keeps our energy independence here in the United States. And so we can't buy this line that you, you, you're going to give up affordability. And you're absolutely right. And here again, go to Europe and people are paying $1,000 to, to heat a 600 square foot little apartment and it's not reliable, right? It, it comes on and off. And I could tell you stories like we could consume this whole hour with people who can't afford this energy transition that's happening because we're doing it wrong. And we don't need to sacrifice this affordability to reduce emissions. Let's talk about innovation because I, I talked about this being a free market approach. And that's something that it seems like uh, is left out of the equation when the other side talk sometimes, how will innovation and not regulation help reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Well, there is no better example than exactly what's happening. And, and, and what's happening is the reality of it is, as business is way out ahead of regulation, we could not have regulated the success that we have had in, in innovation and commitment from, from, from businesses. And every day people bring me uh, innovation because of, of the space that I'm in. I was talking to somebody just the day before yesterday that was, was showing me portable electric uh, or a hydrogen creating charging stations, right? Instead of building these big hubs, they, they can do it portably. And that innovation is just incredible. And the innovation that's happening with direct air capture and carbon sequestration and new fuels and new ways to use fuels and, and the innovation that's happening with nuclear, it is so far outpacing regulation that no matter how hard we tried, we couldn't regulate to get us where we're at. And I think people need to realize that, that look, boy, this, this free market is, is remarkable. And that's why I can look you in the eye and say, look, we can get to less emissions without sacrificing affordability, reliability, or our national security, because you can see it unfolding right before our eyes. And so many times it seems like regulation really 
hurts the situation uh, more than helps it. And I, I think of, you know, automobiles and the fuel efficiency standards that the federal government continues to force on automakers, sometimes even unrealistic. I don't think members of Congress fully understand how difficult it might be to reach a certain fuel efficiency standard. It's just kind of a number that they put out there. Um, and, and yet we're, you know, industry has to drive to that, but there is a cost to that. And we see that reflected in the price of, say, automobiles. Am I right on that? Oh, you're so right. And listen, I, I like to point out, look, if government had regulated how we listen to music, uh, we'd still be listening to eight-track tapes. Now, a lot of your listeners are even going to go look and Google to see what an eight-track tape is. Government, <laughs> government gets it wrong all the time, not just a little bit. We always get it wrong. We cannot outguess where this innovation is going to come from. And, and you may want to talk about this a little bit more, but let's just talk about EVs. So, so government has chosen EVs as the winner over hydrogen, over hybrids, right? Over all these other alternatives. Let's let the market decide that, right? Like let's, let's because if, if we put out there the end goal and then let the market drive towards that and the end goal is less emissions. I'm happy, I'm, you know, that's easy for me to say, but let's not predetermine how we're going to do that. So what we've done with EVs is we've predetermined that the answer is EVs. Well, wait a minute, my wife's hybrid out in the garage is less carbon intensive than an EV. And I can document that all day long. We, we also know that there's a thing called range anxiety where people are taking their, their truck instead of their EV because they're afraid they won't have enough uh, charge to get where they're, where they're going. And there's this whole problem of where the, the critical minerals are coming from to produce the batteries uh, for these EVs, right? And yet we've predetermined that EVs are the answer. And I would much rather say, look, here's the goal. Now, industry, you figure out how to get us there. And I guarantee you, they will get us there quicker, more efficiently, less expensively than government regulation. It, it never works out when government picks winners and losers, because inevitably that sets up, a, number one, it sets up kind of a crony capitalist system, yeah. right? Where the, the, the folks that are benefiting continue to try and make sure that they continue to benefit. But it also often makes for poor decisions and poor choices. And as you point out, the free market, if it's good at one thing, it's good at deciding what, uh, you know, what the consumer wants and what, the, what will sell. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine, you know, 435 members of Congress and 100 members of Senator that spend most of their time in Washington, D.C., um, trying to figure out which technology is actually the best technology. I mean, raise your hand if you trust that. And it's just <laughs> not a good idea. Right. Like, let's let, let's let's help. Congress can help define the goal. Congress can help uh, in appropriate places, putting some incentives in place. But the incentives should be for the end goal and not the method of how we get to that end goal. You know, as I've talked about this energy issue and I've done uh, several topic or podcast topics about it, uh, one of the things that I always hear from folks is that, you know, America produces energy a lot cleaner than most of the rest of the world. I mean, whether it's coal or, you know, fracking or but because we do have a good environmental regulations here in the United States as well. Uh, it seems like we're we're embarking on a, a system where we're forcing uh, oil exploration and oil production and energy production outside of the United States to less environmentally friendly countries. Your thoughts on that? 
you know, you have to really question motives. And, and let me tell you what I mean by that. I love to ask my friends on the left, do you hate emissions or do you hate fossil fuels? And if they're honest, many of them just hate fossil fuels. Well, thank you for admitting that because that we at least now know your agenda. But if you hate emissions, let me give you a little statistic, and you've alluded to this. We produce natural gas roughly 40% cleaner here in the United States than Russia. That's because of the methane that Russia is letting go out into the atmosphere as, as they produce natural gas. So based on that statistic, imagine if we replaced Russian natural gas with U.S. natural gas around the world. We would reduce more greenhouse gas emissions than the entire Green New Deal, right? And we would fuel our economy. We would make other countries dependent on us for energy instead of Russia. Imagine what we could do for good in the world um, if, if that fuel was coming from us instead of Russia and reduce more emissions, right? So if the goal is to reduce emissions, we need to have that conversations about the role of fossil fuels in reducing emissions because they can play a substantial role. Now, this, this statistic you probably know, but let's say this for your listeners. During the, the, the roughly last decade, and it depends on exactly the time period you're, 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 measure, you're measuring, the United States has reduced more greenhouse gas emissions than the next 10 greenhouse gas emitting country, reducing countries combined. How did we do that? Wow. We did that with, you, with natural gas, right? because natural gas is produced so much cleaner. So listen, you want to talk about reducing emissions, you, you have to talk about the role of fossil fuels. And this is what I, so listen, I represent a district that has oil, gas, and coal. And what I tell them when I see them is, look, you've always been told you're the problem. I'm telling you, you can actually be part of the solution. And they love that challenge. They know they need to reduce their emissions. So instead of saying you must go away, Let's change that, that, that narrative to you must figure out how to reduce your emissions, right? Do it cleaner because other countries will catch up with us. So you must, you must keep improving and doing better and better. And by the way, most of the fossil fuel industry has the goal of, of net zero by 2050. Well, let's let them do that. Let's encourage them and let's, 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 let's be their cheerleaders instead of the ones trying to trip them on the way there. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. How does American innovation help make energy better? for others around the world. Listen, I, I wish we could take all your listeners, listeners on a little bit of tour. Uh, I'd take them down to, to Houston and show them Net Power, a natural gas plant that is a 100% closed loop, zero carbon going into the air from, from a fossil fuel being burned. I'd take them into my district and show them the, the, the technologies that I'm seeing being explored on, on, on how to do things cleaner. I mean, this this technology that's being discovered in, in Utah and around the United States is phenomenal. And that will, to answer your question now, how does that help the rest of the world? Look how much of the world is in energy poverty. Look how much of the world doesn't even have the energy to, to do anything other than cook meals with wood. And, and um, listen, as, as we're able to develop affordable, reliable, and clean energy and export around the world, our ability to change the world for good and to impact hunger and impact um, stability is so dramatically enhanced. This should be a number one priority for us because of the way it brings stability into the world and uh, raises the standard of living in so many places. And boy, we have that, we are in our fingertips. We are that close as, as a country to, to blasting this innovation, just the, the roof off of it. And affordable, reliable, and, cl and clean as well. And this is why Republicans, we've always talked about affordable and reliable, 
But we have to be more comfortable talking about clean as well and realize like we're not asking you to sacrifice our, our, our energy uh, independence. We're not asking you to afford, uh, sacrifice affordability or reliability. We can have all those things and we can be clean as well. Well, I think it gets to this, and I always call it the false choice that that so many on the left force us into, which is you can either have a clean environment or you can produce oil and natural gas, and that's just not the case. I mean, we've we've made um, incredible strides, and and again, I think you're making the argument that nobody does it as well as the United States does. And if we produced more in the United States and we exported our technology to other countries. We would have a cleaner, uh, cleaner environment as well. And imagine what that does to our economy if we're the ones exporting it instead of Russia or China. And this is an opportunity. I tell my friends on the right who are, who are just really not into climate. I said, I don't care if you're into climate. You should be in, into the economic opportunity for the United States. The world wants to buy clean energy. They will buy it. Let's let's make sure they're buying it from us. Right. Let's talk about why it is better for oil particularly oil, to be produced here in the U.S. than overseas. Why is that? Yeah, so um, listen, natural gas is probably the best example. When natural gas is produced, if not careful, a lot of methane will go out into the atmosphere. And methane is, is very damaging. And and uh, although we could do better, we're, do, we're very good here in the United States in capturing our methane. So Russia, for instance, is not. And that's why you get the statistic that we can produce it 40% cleaner than they can in Russia. And the way that we, you know, I'll tell you more and more, we're, we're, we're using renewables to actually produce the energy. If you go out to my district, that used to be big diesel uh, generators, uh, you know, putting a lot of exhaust out in the atmosphere. Those are being replaced by renewable uh, resources to produce it. And this is the U.S. innovation that, that is so exciting, right? They're not doing this because of government regulation. They're doing it because it's the right business thing to do. And, and it's pretty exciting to see. Now, you talked about uh, some folks just being opposed to fossil fuels. And why do you say that eliminating all fossil fuels is a bad idea? Well, uh, you'd find me any energy expert in the world who thinks that we'll somehow not need fossil fuels in the year 2050. (laughs) They can't be found, right? Any, Any energy expert in the world will say we will be using fossil fuels in the year 2050. It's just a reality that the the growing demand for energy means we can go all in on nuclear. We can go all in on renewables. We can go all in on on a lot of these things. We're still going to need fossil fuels. So it's imperative that we figure out how to burn fossil fuels cleaner and get to a net zero, which we are on track to do. I'm very confident that our our current pace, we will actually figure that out and, and be able to do that. But to answer your question, it's because we need that for our energy future. There is no plan. Uh, that anybody can lay out that doesn't include uh, fossil fuels in the year 2050. So let's let's get them clean. Well, if if you're confident that we can get to net zero, um, why would people be opposed then to fossil fuels? Is it just convincing folks who've long held that fossil fuels are evil or bad? Is it convincing them that we can get to net zero? You know, it's hard to put my finger on it. I, I, I don't think it's malice. I think it's just a bias against fossil fuels. And, and if we're honest, uh, decades and decades and decades of an industrial revolution with fossil fuels has put many emissions out into the atmosphere that have been harmful. I, I'm, I'm fully aware of that. It doesn't mean that has to be our fate for the future. And, and like I say, this 
this fully enclosed natural gas plant that I've seen, the new technologies that have come along for director capture and carbon sequestration and other technologies to, to burn fossil fuels more efficiently make me confident that they're right on pace with everybody else to our, to our agenda of getting these emissions down. And the reality of it is, I, I don't care what fuel source you look at, it has an Achilles heel. And, and let me tell you what I mean by that. For renewables, we just don't have storage nailed down quite yet. And that's an Achilles heel for renewables until we get that storage figured out. For nuclear, it's cost. Uh, we're, we're not up to the scale on nuclear, so it's very expensive. That's their Achilles heel r- right now. For fossil fuels, it's emissions. And, and so if we simply eliminated a source because it had an Achilles heel, we'd be in big trouble. Right. I mean, all of these things need innovation and, and perfection. So so I'd like to come back to this philosophy that I believe is, is accurate. And that is in the year 2050, we will be deciding which fuels we use based on three things. Affordability, reliability and cleanliness. And the better the fuel does at those three variables, the more it will be used. And so if you're renewables, you got to work on reliability. If you're nuclear, you've got to work on cost. If you're fossil fuels, you've got to work on, on the cleanliness. And every one of those sectors is working um, and making vast progress in those areas. And I'm confident they'll all succeed. And I, I'm also confident we're going to need all of them to succeed to meet our energy needs in the future. Well, and you talk about each one having an Achilles heel. The, the best way to, to fix or find that Achilles heel and fix it is through innovation, as you mentioned, right? And who's going to innovate better, government or the private sector? We all know the answer to that, whether we want to admit it or not. It's the private sector. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And and by the way, it, I mean, it's every, this innovation is everywhere you look. And uh, I mean, people are, are it's just incredible, uh, the innovation that I, is brought to me every day. I'm super excited. I actually believe that when we get to 2050 and we look backwards, we're going to have been, we will surprise ourselves on what the actual answers are that we're not even seeing all of them right now because it's innovation that's just in that incubator right now. And boy, when those things hit, I mean, it could be fusion, right? It could be, there's just so many things out there uh, that, that are developing that are very, very exciting. And let's learn from history. I mean, I think if you look back through history, it's been frankly, American innovation, whether it was, you know, the Wright brothers and, and, and flight or Thomas Edison and, and electricity or so many other things, that innovation is what has made us better and made society better. It's no different here. I mean, history tells us that your plan is going to work better than a government-imposed solution. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just, you're right. The U.S. innovation, there's a formula here that we have to be careful not to ruin. And if, if we're not careful, that's where that regulation can stop on that innovation and, and actually hold it back. Yeah. Why, why do you say it's short-sighted to try to get most people into electric vehicles? Well, listen, um, if the goal is electric vehicles, it's not short-sighted. If the goal is reduced emissions, we have to have a more thoughtful conversation about what reduces the most emissions. It, it, a Chevy, a gas-powered Chevy Malibu produces the same amount of greenhouse gas emissions as an electric Hummer. Now, think about that. We're subsidizing that electric Hummer $7,000 to that consumer who probably doesn't need a subsidy right. if they can buy a, a, a Hummer. And somebody who's buying that Chevy Malibu with the same greenhouse gas emissions, we're, we're, we're telling them they're bad people. 
And so I, I have nothing against EVs. By the way, I would love to own an EV. I, I, they are fast and they are fun to drive. So this is not an anti-EV. I think EVs have made tremendous progress. I think they're a piece of the puzzle. I just don't think they're the only piece of the puzzle and that we shouldn't predetermine it. Hydrogen, uh, uh, you know, hybrids, you know, and other things that are out there on the market that can reduce greenhouse gas emissions should not be written off. And, and when, we, when we build charging stations around the country, because we've predetermined that EVs are the answer, we haven't even asked the question about how do we have the grid to get the electricity to those charging stations? And if we got the grid to those charging stations, where does the electricity come from to charge them? We've seen in California that, that, that they'll say, Governor, will we'll say on one hand, oh, please buy an EV. Or no matter of fact, I'm going to mandate you buy an EV. And then, oh, please don't charge it today, right? Because we don't have the electricity to charge it. Well, there's a flaw, right, that, that needs to be talked about. And if you just cover it up or pretend that EVs can solve all these problems, I think that's a mistake. So love EVs, nothing against EVs. I would love to own one, but I think we should focus on the goal of reducing emissions and not predetermining the outcome. So you touched on this a little bit, but if, if America produced zero greenhouse gas emissions, why would that not have a big impact globally? Yeah, let me actually up that, uh, that question a little bit. Not just America. If you take every industrial country in the world, Europe and, 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 and all the industrial countries in the world, and you got them to zero, absolute zero, by the year 2050, we would have reduced greenhouse gas emissions by a whopping 12%, right? And so that's not going to move the needle, right? We need to move the needle. So the answer is, it's un imagine how hypocritical it feels to somebody in my district that's in the oil and gas or the coal industry, when we say, we're going to shut you down. And by the way, we're going to give a blessing to China opening a coal plant every week and, and, and increasing their emissions. So we're going to make you sacrifice and we're going to give a pass to, to a dictatorial uh, leadership and say that you can just keep opening these and pretend that somehow greenhouse gas emissions, no, no boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Don't cross over country lines. And so this has to be a global discussion. And it can't just be about shutting down U.S. because there are those who would shut down U.S. air traffic. There are those who would shut down all of U.S. agriculture and, and would shut all of these things down and, and then give a blind eye to, to what's happening overseas. And we're just not going to move the needle on emissions. So we've got to be thinking. And, and this is why it's so important for the U.S., to lead in, in clean energy, because as we export that around the world, we're reducing their emissions. We're not only helping our economy. You know, people ask me, how are we ever gonna get China to reduce their emissions? I only know of one answer, and that's to give them a low cost alternative, right? They're gonna, they're gonna right. go with the low cost alternative. Well, if we develop that low cost alternative here in the United States, take our natural gas as, as a really good example. If they're replacing Russian natural gas with ours because it's a low cost alternative, we're reducing dramatic greenhouse gas emissions. And so I, I think we need to approach it from this perspective is, is, is this is another advantage of U.S. innovation is we need to figure out how to get the low cost alternative out there for countries like China, like India, to, to be a U.S. alternative that reduces emissions. That's how we're really going to move the needle on emissions. So Utah is a fairly conservative state. How How is this message of sort of conservatism and climate played amongst your constituents? And what do they think that this is an important message to carry? 
So perhaps the 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 most um, uh, conservative statement that, that, that you've made today is that Utah is a conservative state. <laughs> we are red, 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 right? Especially right. my district, right? So there are obviously parts that, that are not, but my district is very red, very rural in, in, in many places. And, and the best way I can answer that story is um, I had redistricting a, a couple of years ago, and they redistrict into my territory oil and gas. Previously, I'd had coal, but not a lot of oil and gas. So the first time I went out to visit this new part of my district, they said, oh, hold on. I don't think this is going to work. You're the climate guy. We've heard you talk about climate, right? You may not have noticed, but we're oil and gas. And I explained to them my philosophy, how they're actually part of the solution and they're not the problem. And it, did, it, it I had to go back not once, not twice, not three times, but four times, because they're not going to accept this message just like on the first time, right? But as I explained to them more and more how they were part of the energy future of not just the United States, of the world. And how they would actually be part of solving um, our, our energy problems. It was the first time they've ever heard that. My highest percentage of reelect came from that part of my district that is oil and gas. So as a guy who talks about climate, it is important to learn how to talk about it, right, from a conservative Republican perspective. But it's also a very safe place to be because they, too, want to leave this earth better than they found it. They, too, want to, to reduce emissions. But they're threatened with their livelihoods and their jobs and their kids' jobs and things like that. And we've got to learn how to not how to take that threat away from them and actually make them feel like we're going to engage them and they will be part of the solution. Yeah, well, that's and that's great to hear that that folks are listening to that and and uh, obviously it, it all makes sense. If listeners want to learn more about these solutions, where can they go? Where's the best place to learn yeah. more? I'd, I'd uh, send them to uh, curtis.house.gov and then look for the CCC button. That's the Conservative Climate Caucus button on my website. Or they can just Google Conservative Climate Caucus, where we have you know some of our principles listed there. And watch for the Conservative Climate Caucus. By the way, it's it's uh, this this might shock everybody. A, a, a caucus of Republicans talking about climate is one of the largest caucuses in Washington D.C. We have over wow. eighty-five members. That's over a third of all House Republicans who've signed up for this caucus because they want to go on the offensive. They're tired of, of getting their teeth kicked in and, and somehow uh, the branding that they don't care. They do care. They care deeply. This is not Republican Democrat. This is this is human beings, right, who care deeply. And so it's one of the largest caucuses in Washington making a statement that we want a seat at the table. Uh, I want We want to be heard. I'm going over to COP in a couple of weeks. It'll be my third trip over there because we want our voice heard on a national basis, that we have ideas and solutions too. And we actually think ours are better. And so let's debate those. We have a lot of good friends on the, on the left. And I love thoughtful conversation with them about the best way to reduce emissions. And that's the right way to, 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 to get there rather than just having one side get to enact anything that they want without pushback and, and good debate from the other side. So I invite all your listeners to join us in, in the thoughtful debate about how we best take care of this earth, how we maintain our energy independence, how we keep affordable and reliable prices, but also at the same time uh, show the world that we, we too know how to reduce emissions. Well, Congressman, thanks for your leadership on this issue and so many other things. You're a great policy champion. We appreciate it. And thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. And I uh, hope we get to do it again. I mean, don't you feel better knowing that there's someone like Congressman John Curtis in the United States Congress who understands these issues and, and really uh, knows them and is working on them. 
so great to have someone like him join us. I, I just thought that was a very enlightening issue uh, that that we could talk about on the podcast. And understanding that there isn't this false choice. There's not a false choice that that some people try and say on the environment that you can either have a clean environment or you can uh, you can produce oil and natural gas and, and energy. It's just not true. You can do both. American innovation drives that and is doing a great job at driving it. So thank you for joining us. Go out there, defend liberty and freedom. They're worth it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.